Okay, so welcome to the Menover Show. This one is a special edition where we're bringing in a brilliant member of the Outlier team uh, in to talk specifically about MEV and why you should care. That is Karim Halabi. Karim works in the token design team at Outlier Ventures and wrote a great article recently, Guide to MEV in Post-Merge Ethereum and what it means for us. And I really wanted him to come on and talk about that. Karim has a background in blockchain analytics, uh, protocol research, and advises protocol companies that go through the Outlier Accelerator on incentive alignments and value capture mechanisms. So as I said, we're gonna talk about MEV. MEV is, of course, uh, kind of a, a constant within the world of public blockchains, but post-merge and Ethereum 2, ETH 2, has a new order of complexity that represents both ways that different stakeholders can extract value from the Ethereum network and its transactions through what's called um, toxic MEV, but also positive ways and opportunities uh, around innovations in arbitrage. And so there's lots of parallels and things that are analogous with the world of TradFi and and various things that we see in automated markets um, in Wall Street. But also there's some specifics that come about from the fact that this financial system is a permissionless one and, of course, happening uh, in the open in a decentralized way. So we're going to go deep dive into what, it, what we mean by MEV, and all these various considerations. So I'm looking forward to introducing you to Karim. Welcome, Karim. Okay, so today we've got a special where I've got somebody from the Outlier team from the Token Economy Design team, uh, Karim Halabi. Welcome, Karim. Yeah, hey, Jamie, thanks uh, for having me. So I've got you on today because you did a really insightful analysis of some of the considerations around MEV. I think in our Slack channel uh, a few weeks back, and it felt like it was something that a lot of people pretend to understand. Of course, it's quite complex, um, very technical. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of have you share that with the world, but also for me to address some of my stupid questions, ask them on behalf of, of the wider audience. And a kind of open source, a lot of the thinking that we're doing at Outlier, big theme for us in 23 is to, to try and get all the brilliant minds we've got working here out in the public um, sharing their thinking. So um, we're going to deep dive into MEV. Um, quick intro uh, in case people are asking, what, what the hell is he talking about? Um, so post-merge and everything that's been going on with Ethereum 2, ETH2, MEV, maximal extractable value, has become a really big theme of both concern and opportunity, um, both within the Ethereum ecosystem, but across all public blockchains. So really want to go into what it is, what is MEV, how does it impact each network, of course, mainly focusing on Ethereum, because that's where a lot of the economic activity is, at least today. What are the challenges, uh, opportunities, and considerations? I know... It's a big topic for a lot of layer two protocols, um, but also I think all DAP developers, certainly the kind of technical CTO founders uh, need to be aware of. So let's start off very high level, very quick espresso shot kind of technical description of what we mean by maximal extractable value. So MEV basically refers to the value that can be 
you know, extracted by someone just by reordering transactions within, within a block. So we have a block, we have transactions. Changing the order of these transactions can sometimes lead to us you know, getting, getting some money or getting some value out. So that's basically what MEV means in this context. And maybe for kind of people who aren't so technical and don't fully understand how ETH2 works, when you say people reordering blocks, could you maybe explain that a little bit more? Who is people? How are they ordering uh, blocks? So firstly, maybe it would be helpful to go quickly over a public blockchain and how that works. Yeah. So me and you are making transactions. How do we know these transactions happen? Because miners or validators put them into blocks, which are added to a public blockchain, which is like a public ledger or database that anyone can go and uh, audit. The people putting ordering these transactions are usually the validators in Ethereum, right? Who are validating the blockchain. So they have the power to reorder transactions if they so choose. And also they can outsource the building of this block to another person who um, you know, can build a block for them and then the validator can add it to the chain. So in practice, what this means is it's not humans like me and you, like manually ordering the transactions, but it's bots who are doing it according to specifications that humans like me and you have, have given the, the bot. More humans like probably you than me. But yeah, that, I think that's really helpful. Now we're going to go really deep. I know for a more technical audience, that might be you know very obvious, but I do think we want to try to make this both accessible, but then also go really deep uh, and kind of push some of the kind of technical and thoughts. The good news is uh, you're more technical than me. And so I can perhaps represent the non-technical audience and, and you can go much deeper for uh, the developers out there. So um, as I said at the top end of the intro, the subject topic of MEV has really been brought to light as a consequence of ETH2. So MEV is obviously not new or specific to ETH2. However, the dynamics kind of change post-merge. So what's the relationship with the merge and these kind of new considerations around MEV? What's changed? What's different? Yeah, so as you said, like MEV happens everywhere. I mean, it could even happen on Bitcoin. Uh, but unfortunately, today, there's not enough interesting stuff happening on Bitcoin, which is why it's not so so much of a thing there. But yeah, so it happens a lot in DeFi specifically, because that's where we have most of the financial and economic activity happening. Before the merge, in ETH1, as we call it, or proof-of-work Ethereum, the MEV supply chain looked like this. You had people like me and you making the transactions, but then you had searchers, who, which is just short for MEV searchers, who are looking at all these transactions, looking at where they can get the MEV, and then submitting their own MEV transactions, which extract value from people like me and you, and giving that to the miners, who would then put it in the block. So the supply chain was basically, we're getting value extracted out of us, me and you. The searchers are getting this value by submitting it to the miners. They're bribing the miners at times to get it into the block. So the searcher and the, and the miner are um, creating value for, for themselves, often at our expense. Right? Not always, but most of the time, that was how it happened. And we can look at an example of like a simple MEV extraction event. But so how this changes in ETH2 is now actually we have some power, the users, we're getting some value out of this and we can look at how that happens in a bit. And the supply chain is a bit more complex. 
because now outsourcing of the block building itself happens more often. One of the most basic examples is called a, a sandwich attack. And a sandwich attack is basically when one of us wants to go make a swap in Uniswap. You know, d- due to the nature of liquidity pools and how these swaps happen in DeFi, uh, the price of an asset or a token is set by its relative supply in the pool relative to the other asset or token. So let's say we have a Uniswap pool for ETH and USDC. And you want to go, you know, you, you've made some nice profit on your ETH and you want to go sell it in the liquidity pool for some USDC. Uh, so what happens is when you make the swap is that the price, uh, when you're adding the supply of ETH into the pool and taking out USDC, you're lowering the price of ETH relative to what it was before you made the swap. But everything on the blockchain, all these swaps, you know, they don't happen at the same time. They happen in chronological order, or not necessarily chronological order, but the order in which they appear in the block. So before things go into the block, they go into like the waiting room uh, to get into the block, which is known as the mempool. So your transaction of swapping the ETH to the USDC is sitting in the mempool, and I can see before it goes into the block that, hey, this is going to really push down the price of ETH in this pool. And I have some ETH as well. So I know, you know, that's not great for me. You know, my, the price of my ETH is going to go down. So what I do is very sneaky, but I do the same transaction as you, the same swap. So I swap some ETH for USDC. So that gets sent to the mempool, but I make sure my transaction gets into the block before yours because I put like a higher tip for the miners. Like I kind of tip the miner a bit extra, like put my transaction first. So what that means is that my transaction happens first, it pushes down the price of ETH, and then your transaction happens. So you're getting a worse price for your swap than you originally thought. And I've sold my ETH and immediately the price has gone down. And I know that's gonna happen. So what I can do then is I can rebuy my ETH at a cheaper price. So if I started with 10 ETH and I sold and then you sold, so you pushed the price down and I bought back in, I can end up with still the same ETH, but I've made a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars or whatever, you know, difference. And that's kind of like risk-free. The only risk is that someone else does the same thing to me, what, what I've done to you. So if you were to kind of aggregate the effect of that, I mean, well, firstly, is this a temporal thing? So is it effectively based upon the inefficiency or how the system's structured at the moment that the, there are these opportunities to extract value but they're temporal and at a network level at a protocol level they can be optimized out or removed or is it actually that there's this kind of dynamic system and there's always going to be this kind of cat and mouse but the, but the net effect is a more efficient system not necessarily sometimes mev can make for more efficient markets like arbitrage is an example of mev which keeps markets efficient but here what's just happened in the example i gave is i made money at your expense so yep. it's really bad for you like this is what's known as toxic mev because i've made money purely off you and you got a worse price for eth than, than you thought you would when you're trading it. It's kind of analogous to, you know, if we look at high frequency trading, the large majority of activity that happens in, in capital markets now, Wall Street or whatever, is it's not people trading. Um, it's it's bots. It's all high frequency. Um, and there's this constant game 
where people are trying to front run transactions, there's dark pools. Is that kind of analogous to what we're seeing here? It's just within within the architecture of the network itself? 100%, yeah. And, and that's what's been happening in TradFi for ages, right? Except in TradFi, like access to this order flow is more restricted. Whereas in um, Ethereum, you know, anybody can kind of see it if they have the right technical knowledge. And yeah, it happens all the time. That's why something like Robinhood has zero trading fees. Uh, because in Robinhood, like you're the product and they're selling your order flow to someone like Citadel who's extracting MEV from you. Yeah, so that's interesting. So whilst it's analogous, actually, because this is a permissionless environment, and as you say, with a certain level of technical proficiency, anybody can effectively participate in the game, um, both to extract value, but then also to create value. You know, ultimately, it, it's just an order of magnitude more complex, right? So let's talk about some of the kind of toxic um, forms of MEV. You alluded to some of the kind of the um, the more positive, constructive forms of MEV. Let's focus a little bit there. What are the kind of opportunities? Uh, I know offline, you said that this is an area of big concern for layer two. Maybe we could talk about uh, that more specifically. Okay, so w when it comes to layer twos, it's, um, you know, people can write their own kind of rules for how the transactions occur and what order they get you know, put into, uh, not blocks, but the way they get settled on Ethereum layer one. So for example, I could make an L2 with certain rules such that whoever makes a transaction first, you know, gets input in first. So like first in, first out versus like this uh, auction, like how it happens on Ethereum layer one, where whoever tips the most gets their transaction put at the top. People designing layer twos like will start and are already thinking more and more about how they're gonna, you know, handle MEV, whether they're gonna allow all this toxic MEV, you know, maybe they will allow it, but they will find a way to keep the profits and then distribute these profits as like social welfare or universal basic income to all participants on this chain. So yeah, you're gonna get MEV, you're gonna get sandwiched, but you're gonna get maybe an MEV rebate. So different layer twos will have different approaches to, to MEV. Interesting. So in effect, layer twos can provide ways to either correct um, certain aspects of MEV or in a refi context, you know, when we're talking about regenerative, more sustainable systems, um, as you say, they can they can provide some form of communal benefit that that comes out of that that kind of game. And how are we seeing that play out within different layer twos? What are the approaches we're seeing taken by the different layer twos at the moment? At the moment, one I'm aware of who's thinking very actively about this is Arbitrum, who are using Chainlink for a fair sequencing uh, service. So how it works on a technical level, I don't quite know. But it does mean that your transactions are made like toxic MEV proof. So the kind of reactive MEV where I'm seeing your transaction and I'm front running it or something like that is not possible. Because if you've made yours before mine, I can't then go insert my transaction before yours. If, if I'm a DAP developer now, do I not need to really think about MEV other than in the layer two that I select? 
Um, and am I effectively just quite passive in that process? You know, beyond the layer two solution that, that I choose, is this just something that's going to happen to me? And then how do I how do I model that into the economics of my DAP? Because obviously, if I want to price my DAP at nine ninety nine a month for a user, stable pricing, you know, annual pricing or whatever, but there's this variable, this thing that could change. You know, how, how do I factor that in? Okay, so if you're building a DAP, depends on what kind of DAP you're building, what kind of UX you want to give your users. And based on these considerations, you, you can choose where to deploy your DAP. You know, maybe it's on an L2, maybe it's on the L1, maybe it's on some other chain. Um, so for example, let's say you're building some kind of uh, swap, uh, right? And you want to make your... Uh, all the transactions on your DAP, toxic MEV proof. So you're telling your users, hey, you're not going to get front run if you use my DAP. If that's your main concern, uh, then you will probably want to deploy on a chain or a layer two where front running is not possible. So currently, people kind of indiscriminately just launch where the liquidity is, where the, the chain that has the most network effects but definitely one, two years out when there's a lot more liquidity on a lot more chains, people will be launching first and foremost where it, it suits the goals of their project as opposed to just chasing the network effects. How does a cross-chain world then affect this? In a cross-chain world, you have cross-chain MEV. So it gets very complex here because also cross-chain MEV is still very hard to do. You know, there's probably some sh some desks out there and some people who are extracting cross-chain MEV, but there's not a lot of knowledge in the public domain. And also the people that do know how to do this don't want to share this knowledge, obviously, because it's a very zero-sum game MEV. But when interchain messaging gets a lot better, so when you can perform something atomically between chain A and chain B, cross-chain MEV will just be called MEV again. And um, yeah, it, it'll be happening across chain, across all chains all the time. Very cool. Well, look, I mean, I think, I think you've done a good job of articulating what is or can feel quite complex. As you say, I guess it's only going to get more complex, not less, right? Because, because there's a real economic incentive for people to continually game the system and a kind of cat and mouse between... Um, reactive measures, uh, defensive measures um, within layer two, and then you know how other people are going to again come back and try and game the system. And I guess that is the beauty of this permissionless space. I mean, I, I personally hold out that this is what will make this this rate of innovation will make this financial system ultimately much more efficient uh, and much more effective versus something that's just happening in, in a centralized um, environment. But maybe if we just kind of step back from MEV, because obviously this isn't the only thing that you think about. I know you're looking at lots of other things. Um, we're coming up to the end of the year, 2022. What's exciting to you as we look into 23 more generally? Well, so, since we're on the MEV topic, yeah, I okay. think... You just love MEV, right? That's it. You just eat, eat sleep, and drink MEV. Today I do, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, I think just dApps and people building blockchains will start thinking about this more seriously. They'll think, you know, how am I going to protect my users or how am I going to extract MEV from my users but return some of the value uh, to them? So that will become a bigger part of dApp design, bigger part of wallet design specifically. 
that will happen a lot. And more generally for 2023, and I, I think it's a bit cliche at this point, the app chain stuff, but there will be one or two more probably big DeFi dApps that launch their own app chains. Personally, I, I don't think everyone will launch their own app chain. I think it's a bit overhyped. I have my own reasons why I think people won't be launching app chains left, right, and center. But I think that kind of narrative will uh, gather a bit more steam because so far, like DYDX has done it, right? Maybe some other like Cosmos uh, dApps or chains have done it. But like there will probably be another big high profile ETH DeFi protocol that moves to an app chain. That is another podcast episode that I want to do. Um, a whole one on its own on an app chain. Maybe uh, before we close off, can you just give a quick description, a teaser of what we mean when we say app chain? For sure. Okay. So an app chain basically refers to an application-specific blockchain. So instead of you building a dApp on an existing blockchain, you build your dApp on a purpose-built blockchain or layer two, which is optimized for the use case of your dApp. So instead of running a P2E game on Ethereum, you know, where gas costs are very high for a P2E game, you launch a specific blockchain that's optimized for your use case of a P2E game, but you can still rely on Ethereum layer one for its uh, security. Krim, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, been really insightful. Um, I think we'll bring you back again, maybe you and a colleague to talk about app chains, uh, an area I know in, internally that has quite a lot of debate. Um, so I guess you're you're the uh, the anti app chain uh, team. So we'll bring you back on. But thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Jamie. I hope that explanation of MEV was accessible to the layperson. And yeah, thanks for the good chat. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 